Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 31, Daniel chapter 11. Well, we managed to get only as far as the first four verses of Daniel 11 last week. And recall that what we are reading is an oracle delivered to Daniel by an unnamed angel or or spiritual being. This is not Daniel pronouncing this prophecy. He's only relaying to us what this heavenly messenger said to him. Well, the time's around 535 B.C. Media Persia is now the reigning Gentile world empire. Cyrus the Great, a Persian, is the king. He's in his third year in power. Daniel's no longer in the employ of the royal palace. Verses 1 through 4 told us of chapter 11 that three Persian kings would reign and that a fourth Persian king would arise who was very wealthy. History proves that this was King Xerxes. And this king's unmatched wealth would be used to construct a Persian army meant to conquer and to expand the empire. And one of Xerxes' goals was the conquest of Greece. However, after trying many times, having only partial success, the prophecy says that a Greek king would arise and this Greek king would turn the tables and wind up attacking and conquering Persia. Thus, the second Gentile world empire, Media Persia, gives way to the third Gentile world empire, Greece. And history proves that this victorious Greek king was Alexander the Great. He died as a very young man, 32 years old. He left behind no children, even though his wife Roxanne was pregnant with a son at the time of his death. And so as the passage in Daniel predicts, the Greek empire was divided up into four districts, each one ruled by its own king. None of these rulers was a relative of Alexander's. Now I want to spend a few minutes talking about the term Greece. What could be in the word Greece? Well, we're going to get a bit technical. But I think this is something that in the long run is going to help you to navigate the Bible. And it's important to help us understand Bible prophecy as it was originally written and intended versus how it's popularly spoken about today. As used here in Daniel, the term Greece is what's called an anachronism. That is, while hundreds of years later on, this this region or this kingdom would become an empire called Greece, it wasn't at the time of Daniel. In fact, the word Greece doesn't appear in the book of Daniel. Bible translators have added the word Greece in place of the original Hebrew. And the word that they replaced is Yavan, 
Yavan. Or as we'll see in Bible encyclopedias, the English-sized form is Javan. Let's look briefly at Genesis 10 and the well-known table of nations. Because it's here that we're going to find the origins of the territory of Javan. And this chart you see up here is lays out well what we find in the table of nations. In Genesis 10, starting in verse 1, it says this. Here is the genealogy of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Yephet. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Yephet were Gomer, Megog, Madai, Yavan, Tuval, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rifat, and Togarmah. The sons of Yavan were Elisha, Tashish, Kitim, and Dodanim. For these the islands of the nations were divided into their lands, each according to its language, according to its families in their nations. So, Yavan was a son of Yafet, Japheth, and he was a grandson to Noah. Yavan was Japheth's fourth son. And when we look at a map of the region um, in the form of the table of the nations as given in Genesis 10, it helps us to understand what the people of Daniel's day envisioned as the region that our English Bibles usually translate as Greece, at least at this point in history. And while the territory of Javan certainly doesn't include the entire region that was assigned to his father Japheth, it does include large areas of the Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean. It even includes the island of Crete called Kittim. And it goes as far west as Tarshish in modern-day Spain. Now notice, by the way, that Kitim and Tarshish are the names of two sons of Javan. Some Bibles will call Greece Macedonia, but that too is quite incorrect because Macedonia was only a relatively small kingdom at the time of uh, Daniel, which grew, and it did become more powerful by the time of Alexander the Great's father, Philip. To, to call Greece Macedonia would be like calling the United States New York. Now Alexander was born a Macedonian, but he conquered all the territories surrounding Macedonia. Now technically this only expanded Macedonia's boundaries, but upon that expansion the word used for this growing empire was in Hebrew, Yavan, Javan, not Greece, and not Macedonia. In Sanskrit, Yavan was translated to Yavana, which then got translated to the Macedon rather in the Macedonian language, it was called Iona. Later this empire became called Hellas, from where we get the word Hellenization which means the introduction of Greek culture. The word Greece is in reality only an English translation of the Latin word Graecia, which referred to the empire of Hellas, Greece. How Hellas got translated into Latin as Graecia is anybody's guess. Now I tell you all this because 
while it sure simplifies matters just to kind of drop in the term Greece in our Bibles and talk about the Greek Empire, nobody until the late days of Rome in the 4th or 5th centuries AD, maybe 9 centuries after the time of Daniel, would ever have heard the term Grachia or Greece. And it obscures the reality that the Bible uses the term Javan, not Greece. Because it helps us to, uh, to understand that this was part of a territory that was assigned to Noah's son Japheth shortly after the flood. And we learn that the territory of Javan, as taken from the, 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 the table of nations, is, is very significant in size. So when speaking of the Greek Empire prophetically, we need to kind of cross out the word Greece and go back to using Javan as it's taken from the table of nations because that's the term that's actually used in prophecy. And it more accurately defines this territory that is being referred to. See, if you're serious about Bible prophecy as opposed to just only enjoying the dramatic teachings of some well-meaning, well-meaning modern prophecy teachers and all the resultant array of denominational end times doctrines, then this is the route we have to take. I mean, admittedly, it takes a little bit more work to go about it this way, but we're also going to arrive at something much closer to the truth. Now before we dive into the remainder of chapter 11, I want to explain my approach and why I want to go in this direction. Most of this chapter explains the next several centuries of history in terms of wars and conflicts between the king of the north against the the king of the south. And much of this prophecy in Daniel can be explained right down to the various kings and potentates and nations that are involved. Because most of this is history past. And it is well documented with only a few disagreements over details. However, some of the prophecy hasn't happened at all. Some only partially has happened. And as we discussed last time, that is because... The prophecy of Daniel chapters 11 and 12 has intermingled three different eras. The era of the first latter days, the era of the second latter days, and the era of the end of days, the end times, that results from the second latter days. And this is essentially also what happened in the prophecies concerning the Messiah. So it was quite difficult to to, to place the various aspects of Messiah's work on earth into eras. In fact, most of the ancient Jewish religious authorities saw everything that Messiah did as only concerning one era. And thus, they misunderstood Messiah's mission. So my goal is to try and untangle this, this prophecy of Daniel 11 and 12 and then demonstrate as best I can which of these prophetic events belong in which era. 
I readily admit I can't be 100% certain. And I will also tell you that God is a God of patterns. So the first playing out of these events sets the pattern for the next time they play out. The first latter days is a type and a shadow of the second latter days. Therefore, while I will necessarily have to speak of of history and kings and territories, I'm going to do it in a summary fashion or I'm going to have your eyes roll into the back of your heads. Even with this Reader's Digest version, it's a complex matter. However, it's not necessary that we approach it too deeply as do history scholars in order to gain a solid understanding. So with that, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. We're going to reread this in sections. We're going to reread from verses 5 through 20. Daniel 11, starting at verse 5, that will be page 1114 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The king in the south will be strong, and one of his princes will gain power over him and have dominion, and his dominion will be a great dominion, and after a number of years they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south will approach the king of the north to make an agreement, but she won't retain her power, and he and his power won't last either. Rather, she will be surrendered along with her attendants, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. But another branch from the same roots as hers will appear in her father's place. He will attack the army of the king of the north, enter into his fortress, and succeed in conquering them. He will also carry off as booty to Egypt their gods, their cast metal images, their valuable gold and silver vessels. Then for some years, he will refrain from attacking the king of the north. Afterwards, the king of the north will invade the kingdom of the king of the south, and he, but he will retire to his own land. His sons will, uh, will rouse themselves to muster a large, powerful army, which will advance like a flood passing through. In another campaign, it will march on the enemy stronghold. The king of the south, enraged, will set out to do battle with the king of the north, who in turn will muster a large army. But this army will be defeated by his enemy and carried off. The conqueror will grow proud as he slaughters tens of thousands, yet he will not prevail. Rather, the king of the north will again muster an army larger than the first one at the end of this period after a number of years. It will be a large, well-supplied army. Those will be times in which many will resist the king of the south and the more violent ones among your own people will rebel in order to fulfill their vision. But they will fail. Then the king of the north will come. He will set up siege works, capture a fortified city. The cities of the south will be insufficient defense. Even his elite troops will not be strong enough to resist. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to withstand him, so he will establish himself in the land of glory. And he will have the power to destroy it. He will determinedly advance with the full force of his kingdom, but he will make an agreement with the king of the south and give him a daughter in marriage. His object will be to destroy him, but the agreement will not last. It won't work out in his favor. 
Next, he will put his attention on the coastlands and islands and capture many. But an army commander will put a stop to his outrages and cause his outrages to come back upon him. After this, he will put his attention on the strongholds in his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and not be seen again. And in his place will arise one who will send a tax collector through the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he will be broken, though neither in anger nor in battle. Now I know that's really complex, so let's take it apart. As a rule, the term south means Egypt. The term south means Egypt. So the king of the south is usually referring to the king of Egypt. Now, where this can get a little bit confusing is that we've been used to thinking of the king of Egypt as an Egyptian pharaoh. But by the time of Alexander the Great, that was no longer the case. Egypt was conquered. So there were non-Egyptian kings ruling over Egypt. Now, then the north then refers to the areas north of Egypt. And generally, but not entirely, to areas north of the Holy Lands. And the way we're to understand this juxtaposition is that the king of the north will constantly engage in battles with the king of Egypt. And we're going to see this throughout Daniel chapter 11. Now historically speaking, it is well documented that when Alexander the Great died, his empire became divided into four districts. The Ptolemy family dynasty ruled over Egypt. The first Ptolemy to acquire Egypt and to rule over it was a fellow named Ptolemy Soter. He is the king of the south that we read about in verse 5. Ptolemy Soter. Now, the prince that eventually gained power over Ptolemy Soter was a man named Seleucus, a particularly adept general under Alexander the Great, who's now dead, of course. Seleucus at first acquired the district that was Babylon. However, in no time, a fellow named Antigonus took Babylon away from him. Seleucus fled for his life to Ptolemy down south in Egypt. Ptolemy appointed him a general in his own army and later as allies they were able to wrest the Babylonian district back away from Antigonus back into Seleucus' hands. Well the Seleucus family dynasty then became the rulers of the north and their reach and power far exceeded that of the Ptolemy family dynasty of the south. And who's the south? Egypt. Now verse 6 says that after some undefined number of years uh, had passed by, an alliance is formed now between these warring kings of the north and the south. A daughter of the king of the south is going to be a token of this alliance. This has to be referring to marriage which is the age-old way of sealing alliances between nations. And historically we find that about 35 years after the death of Seleucus, who was the first king of the north, 
His grandson, Antiochus II, will marry Berenice, who is a daughter of Ptolemy, king of the south. However, Berenice had a rival for power, Laodice. Laodice was already a wife to Antiochus. And when Antiochus married Berenice, for political purposes, Laodice set around to get rid of her. Two years after the marriage, Berenice's father, the king of the south, king of Egypt, Ptolemy, died, and with it went the political need for the marriage. Antiochus divorced Berenice. And in something resembling the old TV series Dallas, the conniving Laodice had no intention of having her favorable situation undone again. So she poisoned her husband, Antiochus, in retribution. Then had Berenice and her infant son murdered. Laodice now owned the throne of the kingdom of the north. However, verse 7 explains that someone in Berenice's ancestry will regain power in the south and then come against the king of the north. Well, this reference is to another of the Ptolemy family dynasty, her brother, Berenice's brother, Ptolemy Yergetes. He takes Egypt's army, marches to the north, and in the process avenges his sister Berenice by killing the queen of the north, Laodice. Then in verse 8, we hear that the king of the south will bring fabulous booty from the north back to Egypt and have great success for years against the king of the north. The Egyptians are so awed by the success of this third Ptolemy to rule over them that they gave him the nickname of Yergetes, which means well-doer. Next, verse 9 explains that the king of the north had enough of this domination of the king of Egypt. So he took an army to attack the king of Egypt, the king of the south. But the king of the north was defeated and he retreated home. His name was Cellulus Callinicus. Cellulus Callinicus. And he marched against Ptolemy about 240 BC. So we see a lot of times passed. Well, he was lucky to return home, home alive. But family being what it is, verse 10 explains that the sons of this king of the north didn't like it that their father was defeated, and so they decided to do something about it themselves. Two sons of Seleucus uh, Callinicus, Seranus and Antiochus the Great, another Antiochus, began a war campaign to recover the honor of their family. Seranus was killed in the process, but Antiochus the Great eventually marched upon Egypt with a huge, irresistible force of troops from the north. But according to verse 11, the king of the south doesn't take this attack lying down, and so he advances to meet the king of the north in battle. It happened exactly as predicted. The next Ptolemy to rule Egypt, Ptolemy Philopater, enraged at the hubris of Antiochus the Great, organized a battle force of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 horsemen, and 73 elephants. And in response, 
the king of the north raised an even bigger multitude of soldiers. And when the two kings met in battle, Antiochus was defeated, and the king of the south, Ptolemy Philippator, won decisively. Matter of fact, according to Polybius, Antiochus lost 10,000 infantry, 300 cavalry, and five elephants. Not sure which pained him the most. In addition, over 4,000 of his troops were taken prisoner. However, as predicted by the prophecy in Daniel, the results of this astounding outcome were soon squandered by Ptolemy as he sought to live a life of ease and luxury and allowed his Egyptian military to become weak and disorganized. Therefore, verse 13 prophesies that the king of the north, Antiochus, shall gather another multitude, even more formidable than the one before, and begin to attack the king of Egypt. This happened. It was about 13 years later. And Ptolemy Philippator was now dead. His only heir, a son, was only four years old. The king of the north, Antiochus the Great, was nothing if not persistent. He had created an alliance now with Philip, the king of Macedonia and also with some rebel factions in Egypt who wanted to affect a political change in Egypt. So in verse 15, the prophecy is that the king of the north, now feeling powerful again, would restart up his war against Egypt, beginning with capturing a fortified city. Records indicate that this was probably the city of Sidon. However, it might have been Gaza, much further to the south. Anyway, Ptolemy, king of Egypt, reacted by sending his best general, Scopus, to try and recover his lost territory. He failed. Verse 16 now tells us of the downfall of the king of the north. That great Bible commentator, Dr. Keel, puts it this way. Having reached the height of victory, Antiochus the Great falls under the dominion of pride and of haughtiness, by which he hastens his own ruin and overthrow. It talks about the land of glory here in this passage. The land of glory means the Holy Lands and that is where Antiochus' forces will surrender. But then in verse 17 it says that Antiochus is going to give a daughter to the king of the south in order to seal a treaty. That daughter is Cleopatra who was given to Ptolemy. This is not the same Cleopatra as in Hollywood movie fame. However, the marriage couldn't be finalized for several years because it wasn't sexually consummated. And that's because this particular Ptolemy that Cleopatra was given to, well, that little boy was only seven years old. No doubt, Antiochus's hope was that by using his daughter Cleopatra, he could infiltrate and then heavily influence this, this child that she had married. It didn't work. Cleopatra sided with her child husband and worked against her father, Antiochus the Great. Well, verse 18 explains how Antiochus suffered yet another defeat, but this time it was bought, brought about by a new player in the region, Rome. It was a Roman that defeated him this time. And the prophecy is that the king of the north will now try to extend his influence, it says, to the isles. This means the islands of the Mediterranean. 
And sure enough, history reveals, reveals that a Roman magistrate named Lucius Asiaticus defeated Antiochus' forces. This was a huge humiliation for Antiochus, as his forces should have been far superior to those that these islands could have mustered. But then verse 19 speaks of the end of the power of the king of the north. Indeed, Antiochus returned home, a defeated, a humiliated king, and now he was vulnerable. So he spent the next few years merely trying to keep hold of his throne. We hear no more of him now after this time. Now I want to stop and take a breath as we've moved quickly through history. Because I don't want us to miss an important point. Everything in chapter 11 is described to us as future events to Daniel. These are things that when, they, when this was written was yet to happen. There's no verb confusion. There's no misunderstanding of tenses here. Everything we read was to happen well after the time of Daniel. Therefore, for even those conservative and fundamental Christian scholars who have fallen prey to the seminary teaching that the book of Daniel was written around the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which was around 165 BC, there's a problem. Because if the writer of Daniel actually lived after the time of all these events that I've just described to you, then he is one king-sized liar. Isn't he? He is deceiving his readers because he's presenting us with a material he says is predictive prophecy. But who modern scholars say, nah, he was just retelling past history. Then I challenge all who would think such a thing, whether you are a scholar, a teacher, a pastor, or a layperson. If you believe this, why do you keep Daniel a book of deception in your Bibles? But even more, Christ himself upholds Daniel over and over again often quoting him, even referring to Daniel by name in the book of Matthew. Then for us to accept that Daniel was not written in the 6th century B.C. as the writer purports, but rather in the 2nd century B.C., and then that the supposed prophecy is not prophecy at all, this destroys Jesus' personal credibility makes the New Testament Gospels based on nonsense. And that has been the intent all along with these liberal scholars who've taken over our commentaries, our Bible colleges, and our seminaries. I say in the strongest possible language that they are wolves in sheep's clothing and I am appalled that some of our most respected Christian teachers and leaders have ignorantly accepted such garbage and they regurgitate it to their students and to their congregations without so much as a thought about the repercussions of these false statements. This is the result of learning and teaching man-made doctrines instead of learning God's word. 
Daniel 11.20 says that in place of the king of the north, a new king is going to appear. And he's going to send an extractor, probably meaning a tax collector, and he's going to send him throughout the glorious kingdom. The glorious kingdom again, the holy lands. And historically, we find that Antiochus the Great was replaced by Seleucus Philopater. He sent his prime minister, Heliodorus, to seize the temple treasury in Jerusalem. However, for some reason he didn't go. Legend is that an apparition appeared to him and warned him not to do it. And he didn't. Almost immediately thereafter, Cellulus Philopater mysteriously died. And ancient records say Heliodorus poisoned him. Well, at this point, we arrive at the time of the infamous king of the north, Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the fellow that is at the heart of the book of Maccabees. The one who defiled the temple and essentially attempted to kill off biblical Hebrewism. Now please note that we've been encountering a lot of repeating of family names. Don't think I'm repeating or rearranging these names in history. See, just as families today will reuse names generation after generation, it's always been that way. And especially when reading the Bible or when deciphering ancient documents, sometimes it can be difficult to place persons sharing a common name into their proper historical order. So, let's move on now and reread another portion of Daniel 11. We'll start reading at verse 21 and go through uh, 39. This will be starting on page 1115 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Daniel 11, starting in verse 21. There will arise in his place a despicable man, not entitled to inherit the majesty of the kingdom, but he will come without warning. He will gain the kingdom by intrigue. Large armies will be broken and swept away before him, as well as the prince of the covenant. Alliances will be made with him, but he will undermine them by deceit. Then although he will have but a small following, he will emerge and become strong. Without warning, he will assail the most powerful men in each province and do things his predecessors never did, either recently or in the distant past. He will reward them with plunder, spoil, and wealth while devising plots against their strongholds, but only for a time. He will summon his power and courage against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south will fight back with a very large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because of plots devised against him. Yes, those who shared his food will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in the slaughter. These two kings bent on mischief will sit at the same table speaking lies to each other. But none of this will succeed because the appointed end will not have come yet. Then the king of the north will return to his own land with great wealth. With his heart set against the holy covenant... He will take action and then return home. At the time designated, he will come back to the south. 
But this time, things will turn out differently than before because ships from Kittim will come against him so that his courage will fail him. Then in retreat, he will take furious action against the Holy Covenant, again showing favor to those who abandon the Holy Covenant. Armed forces will come at his order and profane the sanctuary and fortresses. They will abolish the daily burnt offering, set up the abomination that causes desolation. Those who act wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with his blandishments. But the people who know their God will stand firm and prevail. Those among the people who have discernment will cause the rest of the people to understand what's happening. Nevertheless, for a while... They will fall victim to the sword, fire, exile, and pillage. And when they stumble, they will receive a little help, although many who join them will be insincere. Even some of those with discernment will stumble, so that some of them will be refined, purified, and cleansed for an end yet to come at the designated time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god. He will utter monstrous blasphemies against the god of gods. He will prosper only until the period of wrath is over for what uh, has been determined must take place. He will show no respect for the gods his ancestors worshipped or for the god women worship. He won't show respect for any god because he will consider himself greater than all of them. But instead, he will honor the God of strongholds. With gold and silver and precious stones and other costly things, he will honor a God unknown to his ancestors. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. He will confer honor on those he acknowledges, causing them to rule over many and distributing land as a reward. Everything that we have read until verse 21 is connected to the first latter days. Important to know that. It happened in reference to the years leading up to the appearance of the Messiah and to his crucifixion. That is not to say that a king or a kings of the south and a king or a kings of the north will not engage in battle once again in the second latter days. However, starting in verse 21, we can definitely begin to see an overlap. That is, what is happening occurs in both the first and the second latter days. This is where the untangling of prophecies and placing them in their proper eras starts to get a little more challenging. And by definition, there will be opinion involved. Hopefully well-founded opinion. This despicable man of verse 21 is Antiochus Epiphanes. But is also very likely representative of the future Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes was the Adolf Hitler of his era. This was not a misguided or a manipulated or a misunderstood man. He was incorrigible and he was wicked. In the mid-1800s, the Bible commentator Moses Stewart had this to say about Antiochus Epiphanes that sets the historical tone for this man of infamy. 
He says this, Epiphanes was one of the most extraordinary characters exhibited on the pages of history. He was both avaricious and prodigal, excessive in his indulgences and prone to violent passions. A compound of the various folly and weaknesses in some respects and of great cunning and dexterity in some others and especially to flattery. At one period of his reign, there was a prospect of his becoming quite powerful. But reverses came upon him, and he died at last nearly as his father had done before him, and on the like occasion. Indeed, his extravagances and follies and cruelty were so great that his contemporaries gave him the nickname of Epimanus, which means madman. But he gave himself... Instead, the title of Epiphanes, which means illustrious. Now, we must pay attention to the life and to the character and to the choices of Antiochus Epiphanes because the Antichrist will be patterned after them. And he will take them to a heretofore unimaginable level. Verse 21 introduces this unnamed ruler who turned out to be Antiochus Epiphanes and later on the Antichrist with the title of despised or despicable man. He didn't have regal dignity. And in fact, he was a usurper. The throne rightly belonged to Demetrius Soter, the son of Seleucus Philopater. Verse 22 says that large armies of this king, Epiphanes, will achieve great victories even over the prince of the covenant. The main issue with this verse is the identification of this prince of the covenant. There have been a number of educated guesses, including Ptolemy Philometer of Egypt, the Jewish high priest Onias III, and a few more. Some have ascribed at least some of the meaning to the time of the appearance of the Antichrist. But then, who is this Prince of the Covenant that is broken and then swept away by the Antichrist? Now, one could rightly call Yeshua the Prince of the Covenant. But it's hard to see how this relates to Antiochus Epiphanes. And if we transfer this from the first latter days to the second latter days in Christ's return, it still doesn't fit. Therefore, my opinion is that this Prince of the Covenant is referring to someone during Epiphany's reign with which he had made a treaty, a covenant. But the covenant was broken. I don't know who it was. Verse 23 seems to continue, speaking about this Prince of the Covenant, but with whom this king, Epiphanes, was deceitful. And history shows that Epiphanes, the king of the north, pretended to have friendly intent towards Egypt, the king of the south, so that he could win their hearts. It may be that an actual treaty occurred between Epiphanes and the king of Egypt. Personally, I see no reference in this aspect to the future Antichrist. But then in verse 24, we hear echoes of warning that we hear repeated in churches the world over. Echoes taken from the book of Ezekiel about something that's going to happen 
in the second latter days, the latter days that are ahead of us. Here in Ezekiel 38, 10 and 11 it says this, Adonai Elohim says, When that day comes, thoughts will well up in your mind and you will devise a sinister scheme. You will say, I'm going to invade this land of unwalled villages. I'll take by surprise these people who are at peace, living securely, all in places without walls and bars and gates. When men think that all is safe and secure, epiphanies will come and do things that even his ancestors didn't think to do, as ruthless as many of them were. This directly refers to Israel. But it might extend to most of the planet in the days of the Antichrist. He will plan how to take spoils from some and give it to those who will uphold him. Wealth redistribution. A kind of Robin Hood plan. But of course politicians throughout the ages have tried this. But they didn't do it for the good of the poor. They did it to disguise their true intents. To only fool and appease the poor. It was to attain the acclaim of the deceived masses so that they can increase their power, all done in the name of social welfare. And along with this, the elite who support this leader, well, they're the real ones who reap all the benefits. Most of what is taken from others is actually given to the leader's friends and cronies. There's nothing new under the sun. And as the prophecy states, all while this sleight of hand is going on, behind the scenes, plans are being devised to attack the institutions, the fortresses of national sovereign power. In the case of Antiochus Epiphanes, he took from some, he gave it to others, and he curried enough favor until finally he was able to get the necessary support to go after the king of the south, Egypt. Epiphanes was plotting against Egypt all the time that he was assuring them of his friendship, of his allegiance. Therefore, in verse 25, we hear of his attack against the king of the south. Egypt will put together a big army and they will offer stiff resistance to the king of the north, but because of all the inroads the king of the north had made into the wallets of the leaders of the South. Many of their leaders had been co-opted into treason and they were secretly on the king of the North side. This is referring to the first major overt campaign of Antiochus Epiphanes against Egypt. The king of Egypt, probably Ptolemy Sicon at this time, couldn't stand against the northern forces because so much treachery had occurred over the years among his own citizens who had pretended to be his supporters. Verse 27 says that both kings' hearts were evil. In other words, there was no good guy in this intrigue. Both of these kings king of the north and king of the south were playing a dangerous game of liar's poker 
with one another. Deceiving one another. Trying to one-up the other. Posturing to gain an advantage. I mean, can you not picture our leaders today meeting with Assad of Syria? Or the current leader of Iran? Or the Russian president? And then they sit and they tell each other things that neither of them believes. And now in our time, sadly, the leaders of the United States and Europe are meeting with the leaders of Israel doing the same thing. Telling lies to each other and pretending true friendship. And of course, this will go on until the future Antichrist as he plays the highest stakes game in the history of the world. A game that he knows is not so much between him and the world as it is between him and God for the supremacy of our planet. Let's stop here and we'll take up chapter... We'll continue in chapter 11 next time.